0: Thanks for tuning into the A Champion's Mind podcast. Today, I've got special guest Leah Thorbleson, who is a professional cyclist for the Canyon SRAM UCI Pro <laughs> Tour team. So, Leah, thanks so much for your time and your willingness to be on the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. All right. She's laughing, by the way, because she just corrected <laughs> me on my pronunciation. For those of you that use... SRAM components there is no H in between the S and the R so just make sure you're saying it right <laughs> yeah so I stand corrected I will not make that mistake again so <laughs> uh, but so Leah let's start kind of from the top and let's start with you kind of as a kid uh, just briefly before we move into where you are now like what sure. was your background and kind of how did you get started and kind of begin participating in athletics
1: okay I guess as far as, you know, my my, origin, my background prior to my short history in cycling was as a runner, and I would say it's unconventional right from the beginning because I actually went from being a triple jumper, hurdler, 4x400 four meter runner in high school to college where I was recruited to mid-distance, and then, I mean, I'm giving the very abbreviated version here, and we can get into it any part of it as much as you like, but I went from, yeah, from sprints and jumps to mid distance and cross country in college to marathons post collegiately. Okay. So it's, yeah.
0: <laughs> what was, yeah, I'm curious. Cause I, you know, I was a track guy myself. Like what was the, okay. So you were a jumper, like a field, right? You did the yeah. field part of track and field and then all of a sudden you get recruited to college and they're like, Hey, you're going to run middle distance. Like what was that conversation like?
1: Okay. So In high school, when I I I think I really started doing hurdles and jumps because I had an older sister and she was doing those things and she was really good at it. And I think, you know, I don't know if I'd say, well, yeah, I wanted to be like, I wanted to be cool like my big sister and I was just up for trying anything really. So I was okay. Like I would go to the regional level, but I wasn't a standout. I wasn't one of those heavily recruited athletes. I actually had been out of high school for a year when I was recruited to I grew up in Minnesota and now I live in Little Rock, Arkansas. I was recruited down here when I'd been out of school for a year. And when I graduated high school, I I had always thought that dance team would be the thing I wanted to to do in college. But I didn't. I was very lacking in direction like. I knew how to be dedicated to something, but I didn't know what I wanted to be dedicated to. I didn't know what I wanted to study. I didn't know where I wanted to go to school. I was just sort of a little bit lost in that regard. And so I had ended up going to massage therapy school and then I I promise I'll I'll bring this back around. <laughs> but then I decided like I graduated from that and I knew I really wasn't I didn't have special sports qualifications and I didn't want to work in a salon so I thought all my friends from high school are are in college now. I should really go get more of an education than just a massage therapist certification. So I was going to Minneapolis Community College, and I was coaching the junior varsity dance team at my high school I had graduated from. And I was running just to stay in shape. I hadn't been competing anymore, but I was still up at my high school on a regular basis, and I heard that they had lost their female distance coach. And, you know, being the the mature 18-year-old that I was, I went into, I ran into the men's coach one day and I said, you know, I heard that you don't have a coach and mind you, I didn't do, like, the longest distance I ever did in high school was I ran the 800 a couple times in a relay, but now I was running a few miles at a time, and I said, I heard you don't have a distance coach if you want someone sort of to be, like, adult supervision. Um, I said, you know, I'd be happy to be out there, and he's just, he actually didn't make fun of me for that comment, but he just said, you don't need to be, you don't need to be coaching, you need to be competing, and I said, well, I go to community college and they did have some sports teams, but it was like volleyball and some a couple two other things I didn't play. And he said you need to be racing. And he said you know I've got a coach down south who's trying to recruit some athletes. And would you mind if I sent him your information? And I just kind of laughed because you know, I had looked into going to a few schools to run and got a few offers quote unquote from. Or had some interest from some Division II schools, but at the time there was no scholarship. so it was like if you're not for Division II. So that would be just something I was doing in my own accord, and I just I had to, just opted not to pursue it because I wasn't certain enough about anything. And um, and I said, yeah, you know, sure, you can you can send him my times. And I remember joking him. I was like, I'm sure he'll be really impressed. And he's like, well, let me just let me just send him some things and see. Well, I got a call, a phone call from the coach the next day. And I think I, whenever I tell this story, I say, you know, I was needing some direction and he was desperate, for athlete, which is maybe an exaggeration on both parts, but he had big vision and, and was, was looking to build a team. And I don't know if after talking to my coach, my high school coach, if he just thought, Maybe I had the drive, you know, it was kind of, our program didn't have a lot of, a lot of money. So I think he, he was never going to get the big names, but he could look for the diamond in the rough. And I think he was hoping that a lot of people he recruited, he was hoping that they would be that. In the end, I put in the work to be that to an extent. I mean, I, I didn't go to nationals, but I ended up running really close to national qualifying times and winning conference championships and in dis- in the cross-country and in the mile and the 800, so mid-distance things. But it took us four years to figure out what kind of runner I was because he knew my background, but he needed distance people, and I was always willing to go and run extra miles. So I remember one conference championship doing my infamous double. We were we didn't have a lot of sprinters. our, our College didn't have a track, so it was hard for them to recruit a lot of fast sprinters. So a few distance kids got popped into the 4x100 meter relay. So I did a double, the 4x100 and the 10K. Oh. So the longest and the shortest races on the track. So yeah, it was, like I said, the whole thing has been very unconventional. It was like, it took us probably till my last year to figure out the 1500 was probably my best event, you know, <laughs> and then I was
0: graduating. So yeah like the progression there going from pretty much very little as next to nothing as we can get experience with middle distance running to getting to the point where you said you won conference championships and Mm -hmm. you were, you were pretty quick on the track, like, and in cross country. What did you gain from that in terms of a perspective that you were able to take with you and you still bring with you now in terms of like, what is possible with, maybe putting in the work and just having the focus.
1: Yeah. I know in my first years, everything was new. You know, I'd never – I'd gone out and run on my own, but I'd never raced long distance, and it was a lot of of a learning process. And I think, you know, where I was very much just happy to finish, I remember being brought up to (laughs) – An indoor track meet and running the 3,000 for the first time. And I would never, like I said, you know, never raced anything over 800 meters. And I finished, I think, second to last. And my parents had come down. And they just kind of had these looks on their faces like they didn't know to say I was so dang happy because I'd just been scared about the event as a whole. So it was kind of, you know, there was time definitely getting your mind wrapped around it. And I think I also went through a season of, I was a college kid. I living, you know, half the country away from, from my parents and not having the rules. And I, I did the drinking on the weekends bit. And it wasn't really until I had, I had a great coach and he was patient, you know, with me and always believed in me, but dating a guy from Arkansas State and they are known for breeding Olympic pole vaulters, and I started seeing the difference in the mindset of a really dedicated athlete, and I think that had a big bearing on me thinking, well, dang, you know, I've gotten pretty far just on Coach Elias's, like, you know, whatever he's chosen to put me into and and, and following the training, but it's like, you know, I wasn't fully dedicated. And then I had a shift of what could I maybe do if I would take this a bit more seriously. And there was one specific, there was a conference meet, and I was in the 3000, which I never mastered that. I don't know if I, I never mastered any of it, but I never even came close with the 3K And my coach was always, I mean, he didn't blow smoke, but he was always an encourager and always, and I probably drove that man crazy because I needed positive reinforcement from somewhere, but it's like he believed in me before I believed in myself. And the one after I had this, I had this bad, like I I didn't really run aggressively. I didn't place well. And I remember going up to him after my 3000 and he said, well, what do you think about your race? And I said, well, I think I sucked. And he just looked at me and this man who had just really always been nothing but encouraging and supportive looked at me and he goes, Well, I agree with you. And it's like it just caught me till I tell you know, not that because it was great. I mean, that was what I needed to hear, but it was just like okay Buck up and run with what you know that he has trained you to run. And the next day, I went and ran like a 13 second PR in the mile. And he was just like, "What was that?" And I was just like, "Okay, now I feel better." <laughs> but it was, you know, it was it was a there was just a couple defining moments of things that you know, looking at the athletes who were were really putting in the work compared to thinking I was doing the work because I was going through a daily routine. But some days you were on your own and you know, not paying attention to you know, I, I cut out the Going to knowing where the cool bar was to hang out Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. <laughs> and it, 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 I, I, re, I cut that out and just got a lot more focused, and it showed in the performance.
0: Yeah, well, I got a, I mean, a couple discussion points on uh, on what you just shared. I think the first one was kind of one of the last things that you shared was, you know. I sympathize with coaches and people that have done the coaching and I've done a little bit of coaching and I do some coaching now obviously and one of the most I guess maybe frustrating things is that a coach generally is going to speak to an athlete in a way that the athlete won't speak to themselves and so having that belief you know the coach you yeah a a lot of times with the athlete the coach has the belief in the athlete before the athlete has a belief in themselves and it really just speaks to the fact that there needs to be just a shift in the mindset, a shift in perspective, a shift in the way that you see things, because you were the same individual that came in second to last, that time that your parents came to watch you in the 3,000, but then your perspective shifted when you started dating someone who was a little bit more serious of an athlete, and you started to see that, and then you began to actually put in that work, and it wasn't that you you got new legs and new lungs, it was just that you began to actually your desires and your wants and what you were willing to suffer in order to get those things just became different. And and you began to be molded into more of an elite athlete. And I told you we were going to do this because I've actually forgotten how fast you were, but what were your times? Okay. Start with the 800, Okay, 800 meters. What did you run in college?
1: Indoor. I want to point that out just because I've always had this thought that actually maybe the 800 would have been my best race, but we had other 800-meter runners, so I didn't get to race it outside because they needed me in other events. But there was a year, and now I am going on a tangent, but it's just, you know, talk about mindset. This is a race that I wish I Someone videoed it that day, and I don't know what happened to the video, and I really don't like watching myself run because I don't have a Shalane Flanagan stride. It's, it's not, mine's not pretty, but I'd like to see it because there was a girl who, had to be everybody's pick. She was in South Alabama, and I should remember her name, but I don't, to win the conference title. And I just made up my mind I knew the way she ran and that I was going to run hard from the get-go, and every time she tried to come around me, I was going to surge, and I was going to block her. And I beat her that day, and I ran a 209 indoor at ASU's crappy track. <laughs> but I never got to race it outdoor. But, yeah, so long story short, 209 was my 800.
0: And, yes. Arkansas State did have a really crappy track. They did. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> I
1: think they still might, to be honest. I don't know if that's been redone.
0: Oh, yeah. But that's beside
1: the point. <laughs> yeah, that is.
0: Jonesboro they might not actually much.
1: because now they have all the money from football. So uh, <laughs> it's possible that it's possible they've got a new track. You need to get yeah. up there and see.
0: <laughs> all right, uh, I'm okay. I'll be all right. Okay, uh, what did you run in the mile or the 1500 outdoor? Do outdoor 1500 and then well, do mile time.
1: I think, and they don't correspond. It's another thing where I, I don't know what it was with me and indoor tracks, although this was on the faster track, but the 1500, I think 435 was my best, which equates to like a 455 or four or five flat mile, but I ran a 444 indoor mile. So I should have run faster outdoors, but I never put it together. I don't know. There probably were a lot of reasons. Uh, yeah,
0: indoor yeah.
1: was my jam.
0: <laughs> well, whatever. Sub yeah. five is still not bad. And then what'd you run in the three thousand?
1: Ten oh one, I think.
0: Okay. And five k. Yeah, Let's it gets it gets
1: less impressive as you go up because <laughs> well, contrary to which is a sort of ironic in that I ended up being a marathoner, but I was I didn't race. I think in the 6K, uh, I think I ran like a 2040 for cross country, but I never, I only raced the 5K on the track maybe twice. I was 1500 focused and I was, did the steeple a few times. I don't, I truly don't remember my time in the steeple because I literally got, I got injured doing it and then he threw me back into the conference meet. He's like, there's no one running the steeple. So just go and do it anyway. And that same meet where I ran the 5K, but I don't remember what I ran the 5K on the track. It wasn't fast, probably 18 minutes.
0: That's pretty quick. I mean, and, and so, <laughs> okay, so we're throwing out times. For those of you listening, here's the reason why we're throwing out times, because those are pretty impressive times, all right? I mean, 444 mile, 209, 800. I mean, 18 minute 5K for what she says, that's still really fast time. Almost going sub 10 for 3,000 meters. Like, those are really fast times, but What I want, what the connection that I want y'all to make is don't just hear that, hear the backstory of where she came from and how she started out and hear the evolution of how she was able to get to like, like the point where she was able to run those times. And it didn't just happen. You know, I like to use the quote that there's no such thing as an overnight success, right? Like it just, it took a long time. She... And it know, took four like, years. Yeah, I was <laughs> it was my say, senior year that I ran those, the fastest times. So, well, yeah. then I was going to say, yeah, I was going to say that. I mean, the stars align, like you're talking about like Coach Elias bringing you in and the fact that he built this thing and it, it took you guys four years to, to get to that point. So yeah. it wasn't like this thing just automatically just snap of fingers and you've got this, you know, program oh. built. And, and just to kind of take it a step further, I mean, Little Rock, I mean, back when I was running for Florida International, like. You guys got better and better every year, boys and girls. He was in charge of yeah. the boys team and the girls team. And little by little, y'all just raised the level up. Like every year, you guys just stepped it up a little bit to the point where you guys became, you know, one of the dominant teams that everybody had to look at, you know, look after, and, you know. And uh, he was a uh, brilliant conference.
1: coach and he had, he had the plan laid out to where if he got an athlete that was willing to go and sit and spend time with him and look and understand and really focus every athlete he had, whoever, Took that attitude, succeeded. I mean, I'm not saying without injury, without a long road to get there, but I mean, even look, you know, now he's he's coaching at at Nevada Reno and has had tremendous success there. So yeah, just a oh. shout out to Coach Elias because he he, <laughs> he was a, a life changer for me for sure. And I um, think having that plan in place and and the understanding of it, you know it's like okay, I, this is he would. Say, you know, what is your goal? I want to get here. Okay, well, here's what you need to do to get there.
0: Right, right, right. Well, that's cool. I didn't know he was still coaching, so that's awesome. I'm going to have to check that program out. Yeah. Awesome. Well, let me ask you this. Like, it took four years, but obviously, you know, the clock doesn't lie. Your times are coming down. You know, you're getting faster. As you're getting faster, then there, there could be this, you know, heightened expectation thing. Like, did you start feeling pressure? more pressure from when you first came in and you're like man I don't know what this guy's going to do with me I mean we'll find out and then little by little you're kind of getting better and so now goals are getting loftier you're getting faster now you're in the hunt for scoring points at conference now you're in the the, the running for winning conference then you're right there on the bubble to qualify to nationals like all that stuff happening I mean did you feel more pressure as you went on that journey
1: hmm that's interesting. And now as much as I hate to admit it, you're asking me to dig back almost fifteen years in my brain files. When I think back on it, I suppose I did. It's it's not as crystal clear as thinking about, you know, my history of cycling or even with marathon where I, I remember like in college I remember it being or more than I remember pressure. I just remember it being exciting me of course there was nerves but I don't I think I got to a point where uber confident but well I guess to an extent you know I was I believed in my training and I believed in I knew what I was capable of doing so I don't I don't remember pressure I just remember I remember a lot of nerves and I remember there being you know some, I guess it was predatory myself, like frustration of wanting to make the regional cross country meet and seeing other girls that I beat get there and not getting there. But I don't, I feel like I feel like part of you wants me to say I did. <laughs> and there's been no. parts of my career that definitely, but, but in college, I don't remember that. And maybe I've just put it all away.
0: <laughs> yeah. No, I hearing, don't want-
1: like Hearing like a, hearing like a, uh, Like, if I go to a track meet and I hear them, like, lining up, like, on your mark, like, it still makes my stomach turn. So there was a ton of nerves. Yeah. But I don't think, and I think when I right when I was getting to the point where I was starting to run really well, the last time I remember racing the mile indoor, I got clipped in the first 200 meters, and I really didn't feel ready. And I remember telling myself, like, I was like, should I drop out? And I was like, wow, what's wrong with your mind? Like, why are you being such a weenie? And I was on pace for like, because based on, I should have been ready to run fast, but I didn't feel it in my head that day. So when I got clipped, I was thinking, you're just letting yourself down mentally. Like, you've got to stay in the race. And I went from being on pace to, I think that day I finished dead last, and I should have been up in the top five. And When I got done, I looked down, and it's like I had actually sliced my Achilles and had to go get stitches. So it wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't just me in my head. It was like I had that shot of adrenaline, and then when it was gone, it was like I really don't know how I finished. it I guess there's the power of the mind, but it there was an issue there. And my point in bringing all that up is, I think when I got hurt there, I got unfit in the healing process, and I and I never Coach Elias ended up moving schools, and and I started training for the marathon, but but I never got back to the track. So I think where I'm going with all that is, like, I think where the pressure maybe would have mounted, like, as I was starting to have big success in it, it kind of came to an abrupt halt. Because I I lost my fitness, and I got put in, like, he put me in, like, as as a graduate in, like, an open division of the 1500 outdoor at Drake Relays, and I had no business being in that field. And I came in last by so much that I was, like, I'm done. Like, that was... I mean, I've never needed to be – I've never felt like, oh, I've got – well, I won't. that's not true. But I don't, I don't know. At that point, it wasn't like, oh, I feel like I have to be the winner. But I don't want to be at Drake Relays finishing 100 meters behind a field that's supposed to be an invitational field. That was – Yeah. <laughs> so, so, yeah. Sorry, that was – I told you I can get long-winded with my answers. But I think that maybe there would have been a point where I did start to feel mounting pressure. But I just remember it being exciting because it was – always a journey of trying to figure out what the heck distance I was supposed to do. And then when we we kind of figured it out, the personal success was exciting, even though I wasn't, you know, I mean, placing in the Sunbelt Conference or winning the Sunbelt Conference. I'm not saying it's not worth anything, but it wasn't exactly like winning the Big 12 or Big 10, you know. So it it was a personal thing. I think it was like, wow, I'm actually good at something.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, and. When you get to a certain level, there is so much and we're going to talk about this not cuz you're racing at the you're I mean right now you're a cyclist you're racing for a team at the highest level that you can get. I mean you guys are UCI Pro Tour yeah. like we're going to talk about it in a second. I mean you did you know the the women's version of the Tour de France this year like when you get to that <clears throat> point, you have to sacrifice and do so much that I think a lot of people don't understand yeah. the Focus, the determination, the sacrifices that have to be made, and they look at someone and they go, "Oh man, they quit. Oh, oh man, look at it. like they, <laughs> yeah. uh, they're they're, ha- they're hanging it up. Like they're taking the easy way out, and they don't yeah. understand that in order for you to perform at that level, you've got to say yes to so many things that are hard to say yes to. And yeah. You've got to say no to so many things that are hard to say no to. That they don't get it. That like you understand that." Saying yes to one of the no's is gonna instantly make you five seconds slower in the mile. So therefore right. forget it. Like I'm out. I I I'm, I'm either all in or I'm all out. You know? Right. And at the elite level, that's exactly what it is. It's I am striving for one hundred percent adherence to whatever program I need to be on to allow me to be successful. And if I can't, you know, give one hundred percent to that particular program, then it's better for me not to do it at all because at that point then I am not performing at my best and that really bothers me and I think that's something that a lot of people don't understand about elite athletics and performance and so to look at you and go oh yeah she sliced open her Achilles and so therefore she just got it and then she went to Drake and she couldn't handle it so she got out and it's like well if you're not all in then just Get out, and it's okay, sure um there's nothing wrong with that, right? and obviously we're gonna transition here. We're gonna talk about like you found something else, right? so there's chapter one, right? and so it' <laughs> yeah. you know running like all that success and that was awesome, but then yeah. you go from like okay, so we're going let let's let's back up a second here. let's back the truck up long jump triple jump hurdles to uh-huh. eight hundred fifteen hundred some four-by-one stuff in there, 5Ks and 10Ks and all that good stuff. So now we're like, okay, we're moving up in distance. And then you go to the ultimate, like, race distance, I would say, like the marathon. So how did you get there?
1: Yeah, I I just really found that in the, um, the latter stages, the final few years of my collegiate career, I really enjoyed the distance training, um, the long runs. I loved being out on the road and just putting miles in. It was it felt therapeutic to me and that just made more sense. And I mean, I think I got to where I loved the run more than I loved the race on the track. I just didn't I, I wanted to go to the road. And it made sense and I had the time to put into doing the training. So we just uh picked a marathon in the fall of two thousand four and just decided to go for it
0: I don't know I guess like it just you wanted to get rid of like I guess the fast stuff like you just liked being on the road and you liked being on there for like a long period of time and yeah just being...
1: I loved I loved it it made me feel good like just mentally there was nothing that made me feel as good as running and I mean I I, I won't I, mean, I won't lie I mean I think like a lot of women I've had body image issues throughout my life, and running seemed to quiet those voices down too. So I'm, I certainly won't say I wanted to run a marathon, because but I mean, it, part of it was running made me feel good physically, and it made me feel better mentally. It was just mind clearing. So if I wanted, to, and I wasn't ready to be done racing, but I really was ready to be done with the track, I think. I don't know if I would have said that then. I might have thought, oh, maybe I'll go back to it. But I just haven't had any longing to go back to the track. But I I loved the marathon. And the, the, well, I guess that was later. I was going to say the community of people that I met through doing the marathon and traveling these road races. But that came later. That came more, you know, I did my first marathon in 2004, and there was there was a break period. And, And the when I got back at it, I met a lot of people that that was a big part of the motivation as well.
0: Okay. Your first one was in 2004. Like, how did that come about? Like, was it just like a, hey, you're, you um, team up with a buddy, like, let's go do a marathon or what?
1: Well, Coach Elias had, when we when I told him I wanted to do a marathon, I think he suggested Twin Cities or maybe I, I'm from Minneapolis, so it made sense. He's originally from Minnesota as well. And I did end up going with a, a teammate of mine came up. With me, Matt Hill actually came and we, we started together. We didn't finish together. He, he finished, I think maybe almost 15 minutes faster than I did. But, you know, to put it into perspective for, for someone listening who's, who's not a runner, and this is going to sound really boastful and I don't mean it this way because what I ran was about what I think it made sense on paper for me to run given my background in training at the time. But some people train their entire marathon career to get a Boston qualifying time and some never never do. And I ran a three, three oh three, my first marathon, which was well under Boston qualifying time, just right out of the gate. And like I said, I don't mean that to be boastful. It's just saying as far as I was decently fast from the first one, but that made sense. I had four years of college training. I'd never really taken a break. You know, we went from indoor to outdoor, maybe took, some people took the summertime off before cross country, but I didn't like to. I've never really been a fan. So I don't think I took more than a week off for five
0: years. Jeez.
1: So it made sense.
0: Yeah, that's (laughs) incredible. That's true consistency there. Okay, so you ran that one. You debuted at three hours and three minutes, which is crazy. But again, okay, like she said, I mean, I'm going to say it again because I think it's important to get it out there, you know, she debuted at 303, but she's a 444 miler. She's a 209 right. half miler. She's an 18-minute 5K runner, right? So, guys, right. it's it's not like, again, it's not like she hopped off the couch and ran a 303. I mean, we're going to get into this a little bit later, but, again, the engine was already there. She's right. riding for Canyon SRAM right now, but the engine is already there. Like, she's been building this car for years, right? Yeah. So she finds a bicycle and she can pedal a bicycle. Well, it's the same systems. It's very similar. So, but anyhow, okay. So 2004, you start off and then what? You're going pretty strong until about when? Well, when I guess
1: the other part of my point in mentioning Boston was that when I ran the first marathon, I didn't have plans beyond that marathon. I didn't know what would be next. I just wanted to see how it would go and go from there. But when I qualified for Boston, That year, my sister had also qualified for Boston. Her father-in-law had also qualified for Boston. So we all decided to go to Boston in 2005. And that's where I said, okay, I'm going to do my training a bit more seriously, and I'm going to try to run, you know, 303 was was decent, but I'm going to try to run fast at Boston. And... I ended up, then I started, the people, so Boston's in April, Little Rock Marathon is in March, and the Little Rock Marathon race directors started coming to me saying, well, you know, if you run our marathon, you, you'd probably be in the hunt for some prize money, which, you know, to a just out of college kid is always, well, that's music to anybody's ears as a aspiring professional <laughs> athlete, but I started thinking, well, that's only, you know, I'm definitely going to Boston, My, our families are going, that's set in stone, but I could race Little Rock and try to make money. And then I could just go and do Boston for fun. And which is what I did. And I ended up coming in second at Little Rock. So I made some money and, and then I had four weeks in between. And, and I used to keep a paper journal of all my training. I've, I, I, I do great to get, I, it's wonderful that there's things like training peaks now where you can record it all on your computer because my handwriting stinks. And I, I really don't know how I did it that long, but I, I may still have it somewhere, and it's it's a little bit sad to go and look at. You know, I went from like I ran eight miles today. It was windy, but it was humid, and I, you know, and, and I didn't uh, what like talk about how I felt, and I would rate my things, you know, perceived effort, intensity, and how I felt. And in between Little Rock and Boston, <laughs> you would notice the beginning of some a change. I think I remember looking back at it at one point in time and suddenly it was like the whole report for the day was a question mark or three miles or something. And I got a bit off track as far as, well, I was making some life choices that probably weren't the smartest, but I also, I think I had just burned out. I burned. I wasn't approaching. I, I might have just been that I, I probably just should have taken some time off or maybe it was just that, you know, I'd been a dedicated athlete in high school and all through college. And I kind of never, other than my knowing where the bars were during the, that one semester of college, mm-hmm. i would never really had a bad spell of make, making poor life choices. And I think I I, I took that. <laughs> I made up for that time. It all began between Little Rock Marathon and Boston Marathon. And honestly, when I went to Boston, I didn't have any business even showing up and trying. But I ended up running a personal best. And trust me, I certainly will say this is I don't recommend this training plan to anybody. But I think what happened was I had trained so hard for so long. I laid it all out there at Little Rock. And then I really took a proper tape. Well, not proper because I, I wouldn't suggest like my lifestyle at that point. But as far as. Going from running, at that point, I was probably doing 75, 80 miles a week, and I probably took a short taper to Little Rock because I didn't like resting, and I didn't, I hadn't quite even had the maturity at that point to understand, like that, or I just didn't even want to hear it, that it would make sense. So then for Boston, the one thing that was great for my body was I had this big rest following years of hard training. So my body was still able to pump out. Like a two and a half minute personal best at Boston. And then I decided I was going to take a full month off of running. And, um, two and a half years later, I started back.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I took it to, it, I took it to an extreme.
0: Yeah. It, but <laughs> this is a mindset principle that I run into often. I struggle with it myself as an athlete still. Like, We train so hard, we build something up, right? We'll train for eight months, a year, you know, whatever, six months, longer than that even, four years to build up, you know, for an Olympic Games or something, right? And then you hear athletes all the time like, oh, my gosh, if I take a week off, like it's gone, like it's gone. Like it's, oh, my gosh, I'm going to lose it all, right? And we get so paranoid about the fact that the fitness – and the skills that we take so much time to build up that they're going to be gone so quickly. And it's just absolutely not the case. I mean, it's one of the biggest lies that we tell ourselves. Yes. And so we it's so hard
1: to appreciate the value of rest. And, and my boyfriend's actually sitting here and I guarantee he's probably chuckling over there listening to me say this because he thinks I don't, still don't rest enough. But, but, um but I know I've gotten compared to where I was, you know, and actually I've gotten really good at it. I, I I've, I had a coach that, this past year, I've switched coaches recently, but, you know, it would be two, three days on one day off. So going from somebody who's like, literally, I mean, yeah, I was paranoid about taking any time off. And then so it's like to the, to the point that when I decided to do it, it was like, you know, now I think I, I, it's it's a very different mindset of realizing sometimes a rest day is going to do more for your body than a training day. I mean, you have to, you have to, <laughs> you have to see right. the value in recovery and letting your body be at its best but yeah I think it's it's definitely a common mindset and I mean and I and I fought it for years
0: yeah and I and you know the the way that I can explain this kind of metaphorically to somebody is you've got a puzzle right and it's got all these pieces and so often when you're younger you look at uh you know this puzzle and how did you build you know how did you how did you do a puzzle when you were younger you would look for like oh, the eye or the face or, oh, that color that sticks out. And you would do the easy parts first. The hard parts of the puzzle were always, like, the corners and, like, the parts that, like, didn't really look very distinguishable. And that's how we would treat recovery days. Like, I know when I was younger, you know, that's how I would treat a recovery day. I'd be like, oh, that puzzle piece is, like, one of the corners. Like, you don't really need that one to make the puzzle look good. Right. And as I get older, i realize that, actually, the recovery – the rest is actually one of the really important pieces to this puzzle. And I mean, if we really, really want to get down to nuts and bolts, like if you don't have all the pieces, like the puzzle is incomplete. So who cares anyways, right? I don't care whether you want to argue with me that it's an important piece or not an important piece. It is a piece of the puzzle. You do need it. If you don't get it and if you don't put it in there, then the puzzle turns up incomplete anyway. So, but, um, Okay, so two-and-a-half-year break, just coming off of, like, I guess you're, like, thinking to yourself, I just need to not do this and just not be held to the fire to to train. And so after that break, like, you ramped it back up and got back into it? Like, what was the mindset like there? Were you ready to go, or was it more sure. like, I just need to make a change and just get back to who I was? Or, like, what was it?
1: Yes, all of the above, probably. Um, I think – so, I, and in those two and a half years, it wasn't that I never ran. It was just like I would run for a few days and then, you know, the weekend would come around and I wouldn't run at all. And if suddenly it was the middle of the week and maybe I'd run for a day. I mean, there were some time that I didn't even try at all, but there was times that I thought, oh, I'm going to start back. I'm going to start back into running. And then I just, I wouldn't, I would, I had, my priorities were, were different. But yes, I... My I had a friend who was really with me for the whole the whole ride. You know, she's we would run together and she was somebody that it's like I could talk to about my weekend and the craziness that went down without any judgment and even though I knew she wanted me to be making better choices for my life, but she was always gonna be there. She was gonna laugh at the things that I could let be funny, but you know, if I was in like the running community with some there was other people who I'm not saying I would have lied to, but I surely wouldn't have freely offered some of these stories. But she was kind of my confidant and the person that's like, you know, okay, let's go and run. And we'd run together and hash it out and was really the person who probably kind of brought me back around. And it came um, it came October and there was a mud run. And she's like, let's say it was this costumed run. And I hadn't been around You know, I'd done some running, but I hadn't been around, like, the running community. This was the fall of 2007. I hadn't been around the running community since 2005. And me and my friend Angie and my friend Suna put on these – we made ourselves super animal costumes and went and did this mud run. And, I mean, literally, it's like the point – at the end of it, they had mud marshals. It's like the last 100 meters, they forced you to crawl under these ropes and, like, just get yourself completely filthy, And I'm waddling out of this mud pit in my super chicken costume. And I see Bill Torrey, who's a really well known person in the running community here. He owns a running store now, worked at a running store previous to that for years, um, race directs a number of races. Like he's one of those figures in the running community here. And he, I see him on the sidelines. You know, he'd done the run as well, but. He looks at me, and he goes, that's a hell of a comeback, Wilson. <laughs> and I mean, it was like, and just kind of laughed, and, and, and I thought, I miss this. Like, I miss these people in this community. And there was another defining moment, too. I think that was back in the days of MySpace. I don't think it was Facebook. I think it was MySpace. That's funny. But something popped up on a wall, whichever it was. Matt Hill again posted something about Ryan Shea, who you know, right? You know, well, you know. I should yeah, probably say for
0: yes, he passed away. He passed right? away.
1: He was yeah. running in the Olymp- in the Olympic Trials marathon. That's, collapsed, that's right. collapsed at mile five. Yeah, and passed away. And something about that story, I almost got obsessive about it, like trying to find something about it. I mean, I know it was going to bother anybody to the core, but something about that made me like in somewhere in all my obsessing combined with, you know, my run in with people at this race, I was just like, you had talent. And what are you doing? Like, mm-hmm. really, what are you doing? You're squandering it like you had a gift and you're not like you're an idiot. You're being an idiot. And it was like those two things. I was just like, I'm going to get back into running. I'm not for a long time I don't think I even wore a watch. I was just like I don't want it to be I just want to get out and run every day. Maybe that was before the mud run, but at some point I was like, "Okay, I'm going to start training, but I'm just I'm just training. I'm just going to do enough base miles so that I can complete a marathon. I'm going to run the Little Rock Marathon in March." And this was October, November. It was the winter of 2007. So Prior to my Boston time had been 2:57 and change. So on a base of training, but nothing specific, I went to Little Rock in 2008 and ran a 2:52. And the reason I'm mentioning the times is it, it 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 has a point. So when I ran a 2:52, I started thinking, well, I wonder what it would take to go to the Olympic trials. Like I just didn't know. I had never really looked into yeah. it. I just knew, shoot. I took two and a half years off and came back and I, I I mean I was putting down probably between 55 and 70 miles a week so it wasn't like I was doing but I wasn't doing anything specific I was just running just a lot of running <clears> and and I got I guess I got my workouts in through races you know I did five and ten k's on the road it was it was fun so then I thought well I just want to see you know what it is and I looked up of course they change year to year but I looked to see what it would have taken to go, because the 2008 Olympics, those trials had been in 2007. And the qualifying standard was, I think for that it would have been 247. It ended up, I was looking at the release, the standards for the 2012 Olympic trials was a 246. And I thought, I can do that in four years. I ran a 252 if I just even, like if I add a bit more volume and I put in even a few I, I know I can commit to the track. I used to do this. Like, if I put in a little bit of speed work and keep the mileage up, I can cut six minutes off my time in four years. And I set out for that to be my goal.
0: Yeah. Man, that's just getting back to kind of how you got back to it mm-hmm. and, and what you did, like running without a watch, not being on a super regimented, like, training program. There, mm-hmm. So there's this balance that has to be struck yes. there between – you want to be good at something, you want to be successful, you want to be fast, you want to be competitive. So you've got that side, and that side takes a lot of discipline, it takes a lot of sacrifice, it takes like all those hard things. But then you never really truly get as good as you're going to be at something if you don't like it. So right. Then there's the other side where it's like, hey, let me just do this and let me just have fun and let me just like, enjoy you know, it. kind of goof off, right, and enjoy it. And somewhere in the middle there is the recipe for, you know, that particular individual athlete. Like, what what is it? And it's different for everybody, but you scaled back from the, like, ultra-focused, ultra, and you found the other side. (laughs) Yeah, and you got faster, and so then you're at 252, right? And then you're looking at 246, and and then, yeah, so then what happens from there?
1: Well, I just have to interject really quick, too. It's just funny that, you know, you talk about the enjoyment and that to kind of drill home, and I'm sure someone who's listening will be able to relate to this. Like, when I was in college and in the summertime in Arkansas, you know, it's like you've got to get up and get your running in in the morning or in the evening. And I've always been, I like to start my day that way. I don't like giving the day the chance to have something You know, you don't know if you're going to – you don't have to worry about what you're going to eat all day and if it will be okay for your evening run, and, you know, you don't have to worry about, oh, what if a storm blows in? So I would try to get up, but some mornings it was hard. And, I mean, I've I've actually gotten the get-up early thing down as life has made me, you know, having a full-time job. And prior to – well, this is a different full-time job. But anyway, I know, you know, when I was in college in the summertime and I wasn't working full-time and you had free reign of the whole day to run, but the weather, it wasn't okay. So the days I would choose to sleep in and I would know that I had to run later, like I would take naps and I would have these nightmares. Well, I mean, they weren't really nightmares, but they seemed like it, like how stressed out my mind was about training. It's like I would have nightmares about oversleeping and missing my run or waking up and it's dark out and I'm supposed to be at a race and it's like it's 8 p.m. at night in my dream and I'm still thinking like maybe I can get there and still place okay if I just run really hard, like for a race that started at 8 in the morning. Like... It was so obsessive that I know, you know, when I was getting back into it, initially, like you said, there's definitely a balance, but I had to go through a period of, I don't want to make myself, I don't want to burn out again. So if I wake up one morning and I just really don't feel like running, like really don't, and you have to have discipline. You can't just be like, well, I didn't feel like it five days in a row. But it's just like, if I really felt like it was a chore in the beginning to begin that discipline, to get back into routine, I was like, I'm not running today, and I'm not going to sit all day and obsess about when I'm going to get in tonight or where I'm going to, like, oh, no, 10 miles missing. Where else can I plug them in this week so I get my 100 miles? Like, I'm not doing it. Of course, later, you get more disciplined, but I was like, until I can make sure that I enjoy this, if I wake up and I feel like, no, because I'm not going through the nightmare stuff again, <laughs> like, I'm not doing that. So, but I did, after I ran that, yeah, so 252, and I think I've got four years to get down. So I got, I got a bit more... I started adding a little bit of mileage. I would be lying if I said I remembered exactly at that stage how much speed work I added. I think I started going to the Tuesday night track sessions with the local group, but I don't know if I was super regular about it. I just, I became more, I went back to, like I said, bumped up mileage and a little bit of speed work, and half the speed work I did was picking a local race on a weekend because that was more fun for me at the time. That was like a way to get in an extra workout without feeling like it was even an extra workout. It was a, it was a race, and I got to be around people.
0: And,
1: <laughs> and I went to Chicago that October, 2008, and I was thinking that if I broke 250, that would be a sign of a good progression. You know, six months, whatever. I was like, okay, if I if I get if I can run a 249 anything, I'll be happy. Remembering my goal is 246 by. 2011 and i ran a 244 in chicago and then it then it all got real and then when you talk about was there a bit of pressure even though there was i mean mostly there was excitement and just like disbelief because i ran a a seven minute personal best in a marathon at those times is it doesn't happen that often
0: huge it was
1: i i really couldn't believe it but then it was like okay this isn't just a goal anymore like qualifying window wasn't open then but I was like if I stay healthy and in the shape that I'm in now I'm going to be running in the Olympic trials like this was my goal for four years and I just did it so then it was like then it got real but for the moment being I mean I still had I still had three two years three years that I continued to run and, and have fun I mean I didn't start dialing things for a race four years away But I just knew that if I had one big long-term goal, it was the 2012 trials. And then, okay, so to get into the talking about the pressure and how I know it can affect you, the window to qualify, to officially qualify for the trials, opened at the Twin Cities Marathon the next year, 2009. So I continue with my after, that That will have a point in a minute. I told you I get bad and wordy, but I'm trying. I'm trying to get there quick so 2008 i ran at little rock that year i think i ran another 244 at little rock and then it was like okay that wasn't a fluke race like i'm really this is the fitness that level that i'm in and you know then it was let's find a group of friends and find a race that's supposed to be fast and because little rock's not even really supposed to be fast it's fairly hilly and not, it's not known for being like a personal best course. And I think I did run a personal bet there, but it was by like 20 or 30 seconds. It wasn't the jump I had at Chicago, which was fine. I wasn't expecting that, but um, I traveled up to Green Bay with, I mean, we drove up in a van. We had like eight friends, like made a road trip out of it. It was, it was a riot. And, but I knew being in a race with, with fast competition and being on a flat course and being in cool weather I knew I might be able to run another personal best. And I had another seven-minute breakthrough, which I totally didn't expect either.
0: Whoa. Yeah. Uh-huh.
1: So I went there. And, I mean, I, I really I hadn't been – I was racing. I wasn't looking down at the clock. So I didn't have a clue that I was running that fast. And when I came around, like, the final little stretch and saw the time on the clock, I actually, I'd been in the lead for 20 miles. And Janet Bauckham, who went on to be an Olympian, was in that race. She'd won it the year before. And I was just on my own. And I felt so good. I was just like, you know, I, and there was a she caught up to me about mile 21. And we went past a water station. And I grabbed my bottle that we had They had tables for elite bottles. And we both were in that field. And She knocked hers down and didn't get it. And I remember we both were running for marathon guide. I mean, we didn't train together or know each other real well. But it's like, you know, I was like, oh, she's she's a teammate, even though she's a competitor. And I remember she dropped her bottle and she kept running. And I was still holding mine. And I said, do you want some of mine? And she's like, oh, thank you. And she took it. And that was the last time I was ever ahead of her. (laughs) But she uh, had run a 237 before. and, And as she started to pull away from me, I thought, I can chase her. And I knew I was at my limit. Like, I knew... I had four miles left, and they were going to be long. And I thought, I can go after the victory, but if I pick up my pace any, I might explode. And I know if I stay where I'm at, I know I can finish on this pace. And I don't really know what I'm running, but it's going to be a massive PR. And yeah, when we came around, you, know, you couldn't see the clock until you were 50 meters from it. And there's a picture somewhere of two of us beyond the finish line. She beat me by one second, I think, because she Ooh. she got a pretty good gap on me. But then when I knew I only had a mile left, I was like, okay, now it's time. It's like I was closing and closing and closing, but I ran out of real estate. You've never seen a happier person get second place. <laughs> I just couldn't believe it. And then, you know, the eighth, the funded, so 246 gets you, you're able to register and run at Olympic trials. 239 is a funded position. So I ran a two hundred thirty seven fifty six in Green Bay. The window wasn't open yet. Window opens to qualify for the trials at Twin Cities that year. And I chose to go there. I'm like, how great is this gonna be? My family's from like my family's all coming out to watch. And again, we had a huge group of friends travel up there to do it, some to do it and so well yeah, I guess everyone who traveled was also running, but you know, to support me. You know, I think I felt excited. I don't I don't remember feeling like oh, I'm under so much pressure, but there must have been pressure that got to me because I was the first person to miss qualifying that day. I think there was, I don't know how many people. I ran a 2.46.15, and I never, I did qualify, but I never ran another A standard time until after the Olympic trials race. Like, yeah. I think there's something there. Like, I, I had a good mindset, but talk about mastery of something, there was definitely a piece of it that I didn't put together in high-pressure situations.
0: Well, can I interject? Yeah. This is the paradox of performance, and this is something that I try to kind of get my athletes to understand, something that I try to get myself to understand, (laughs) something that I try to get pretty much everybody to understand, because this is how it works. Again, it's paradoxical. It's absolutely crazy, but this is how it works. When you can free yourself of actually wanting the thing that you desire, that's usually when you get it. Yeah. Right? So it's like you did the seven-minute PR. You get to 244. You go, oh, you know what? Let's look up the, the standard times. But, again, you're thinking, ah, you know, I mean, we'll look them up, but it's still kind of a game, and it's still kind of lighthearted and everything. And then, boom, you run the 237, and you're like, oh, man. Like this is real now. Like yeah. you even said it yourself. I, this is a very real. This is a very tangible thing. And all of a sudden,
1: well, and that something and that, that you notice. You know, it's like the two forty four was was great and was fast. But it's like a two thirty seven. I think when I ran it at the moment, because you hadn't had your Boston. You had had Boston. I don't know. It was like the second fastest time by an American that year at the time. Certainly not by an American. But I had. To, and the only reason I know that is because it's like it was the kind of time that some random person who follows statistics emailed me and was like,
0: do you realize that blah, 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 blah. And you're like, oh, wow. Well, and then, but then you went and you ran the 237 where you got second and you weren't even looking at your watch. You know, you were just running and you had no idea what you were doing. In other words, you were free in that marathon. You were totally free to just run you know yourself, right? We know our bodies. You're like, hey, I'm pro. I think I'm moving pretty quick. You yeah. Know I mean, we know, you know, stride length and all that kind of stuff. You know, you're thinking, hey, I'm on a good day today. Like, this is going to be a good one, right? Yeah. But you had you you didn't really didn't know exactly how good it was going to be. And it's like, you got it, right? And then you're like, oh, boom! Like the scales come off the eyes. Like you now know what you're capable of. And now it's like, oh, you know, uh, yeah. Phil, now Phil Gaimon, like you know, Phil Gaimon, like recently retired. And I was listening to one of his podcasts, and he says. You know what the hardest thing about success is? It's when somebody asks you to do it again. Like, yeah, right. It's like the first time you kind of get away with it. Everybody's like, oh, hey, wow, that was great. OK, uh, hey, can you do that again for us? And now it's like, oh, yeah, now there's this expectation. There's this pressure. And, you know, it, it can sometimes knock us down a little bit. But so but you do end up eventually qualifying for the trials in 2012, yes. right? Yes. So where did you get that time?
1: The, I think the first, because, you know, you have a, you have a window from 2009 to 2011. So I think the, the first race where I officially got the qualification was the Fargo Marathon in, uh, 2010. And then I went on to run other qualifying times. I never did get the A standard, which is another thing. It's funny. It's funny to me, like the irony of it, I guess, or I don't even know if it's irony. I'm probably using the wrong word, but talking about Twin Cities where I was the first person to not qualify. Well, I went on to qualify and, grandma's marathon in 2011 i was taking my last you know serious shot at a fast race at an a standard time 17 runners got a standard times that day i was the first one to (laughs) not it was like so it was good it was like i think and i ran the fastest time i'd run in a few years point i ran a 239 and change but you had to have 239 flat or faster so it's like Oh, wow. Yeah. I was like, why am I always so? No, I didn't even say that. I, just, I laughed. I was actually really happy to be under 240 again for the first time in a while. But yeah. So yeah, I had the first one was Fargo and I went on and ran. I, I continued to have moderate. I mean, it was, I was, I was successful, but I, I didn't have any other breakthrough races. And in, in 2011, my coach really said, okay, because I loved, I loved to race. You know, if you look at the really successful marathoners, I think, most of them max will do two in a year you know they'll pick a fall and a spring marathon some just do one and their whole season is focused around that i loved a big part of it for me was the camaraderie and having this group of friends who would travel around together and it was the road trip to get there and it was the i think you know like you said when there wasn't pressure like when it was you know the races that were so big that you had this you know elite athlete meeting like i think i let myself get intimidated and overwhelmed it's like i like to just go And and show up and and race and do my thing. But I was, the coach asked me to really dial it back because I was doing eight marathons in a year and not all of them were all out effort. You know, you have your A and your B races, but that's still a lot of marathons for someone who's trying to be competitive. So he said, okay, 2011, I want you to, you know, chill out. I don't think, I'm trying to think if I ran a marathon that fall at all. I probably did, but not like as a serious race. He said, follow my training, you know, follow what I want you to do as far as races. And after you get through the trials, you can run as much as you like. And I don't think he expected me to take that statement, like, quite literally. But I don't know. I also don't know if you understood, like, how hard it was for me to turn down when people were taking these trips and going to run. And it's like, okay, that's not best for you. But I made the commitment for the most part. Like I said, I'd have to go back and look and, and see if – I feel like I did do something that fall, but I certainly didn't do eight marathons that year but went to the trials and thought going into it that, you know, this is what I've been training for, workouts have been good, I'm fit, I'm ready, and I had a, I had a crap day at the trials. Not by, by most people's standards. I, I ran a 242.09, so it wasn't bad, but when you're hoping to have a breakthrough personal best, and a personal best, I figured – if I could run a personal best it might depending on what happened to everyone else you know how everyone else's races were but I would I had a chance at being top 15 to 20 I mean if I really had like a random unexpected breakthrough maybe higher I mean I didn't I didn't I knew it would take a time in the 220s to go to the Olympic Games so I certainly wasn't going there thinking oh I'm gonna make the Olympic team and then I'm let down but I wanted to have my best day and I sure. and I didn't and something like. I was devastated. Like, I remember I was staying with a couple of my friends, um, Kim and Carl Carter, like a couple. Like, I was staying in their room with them in Houston where the tries were. They'd come down to to watch and to race. And, and I came in one night, and, I mean, cause they told me later, you know, like, yeah, we heard you, and we didn't know what to say. It's like, I went into the bathroom, and I was just sobbing. And I was like, I couldn't even really – well, part of it, I think I'd probably – well, not even probably. I'd definitely been drinking, too, in celebration. But it's like, like – all these emotions of you've poured everything into this race, it can be heartbreaking when it doesn't go well. But I also think I just started looking at, like, when you get to a certain level, you don't need to, I mean, you have to find that balance between obsessive and not focused enough. You know, you have to find that perfect balance. I think I thought I had found it, but then in hindsight, I was like, well, what went wrong? And I was like, I, you know, I didn't. Perfectly dial my nutrition like say an elite athlete would. I mean, I certainly it's like nobody would look at me and be like, yeah, man, you were hefty. But I went on to you know get more strict about my sleeping after the trials because I was just so frustrated. Like, what did I do wrong? And it was like, well, you didn't, you know, you didn't make sure you got great sleep. I've struggled sleeping for a long time. You know, you, you just were a bit distracted. Not that when that came when I was out on the road and I was doing my track and I was doing my running, I was focused, but in my day-to-day life, I let myself get a bit emotionally distracted. And and I just didn't, you know, the only reason I even bring up the nutrition, and I certainly say this with a whole lot of sensitivity to people shouldn't be obsessive, but you need to be focused and dialed on that. And I thought that I was, but when I really did dial it down, I probably dropped five pounds and five pounds at that level. It was the difference in It was a big difference for, for me. And I don't, like, like I said, this is, I, it's, it's a sensitive subject because I get nothing frustrates me more than, than eating disorders. So I don't want it to go down the wrong road, but just being like, if you were saying like, well, what did you do wrong? It wasn't my training was really good, but I kept with the same. I got really fueled to take it to another level with, you know, I was in bed at nine o'clock every night leading up to, I decided that Little Rock Marathon, I was going to have revenge on my, subpar performance at the trials and and I did for the first time in three years I broke my time from Green Bay by 30 seconds so it was yeah that was my redemption but along the way to go back to my coach saying you can do whatever you want to I didn't stop at Little Rock I had a 50 mile race planned in May and when I looked back and counted I wasn't even paying attention it's like oh you guys are going to this marathon I want to go oh you guys and I felt so good until I didn't like, it was, like, between the trials in Little Rock, I'd say about three weeks post-trials, I started feeling good on, like, every run. And I would have this run that was such a breakthrough run, I'd just be like, tomorrow I'm going to be tired. And I'd go out the next day, and I'd feel good again. And it was just, like, I couldn't make myself tired. but I. And so it's, like, so I wanted to get out and race, and oh, I'll do this marathon as a training race, and I'd still, you know, run a 247. And, and so it's, like, it became the good feeling became addictive. And when I started to get tired, because of course I was going to, I was doing way too much. And, and maybe, you know, arguably to the counterpoint of what I said earlier, I probably took the diet maybe too extreme. I don't know because I ended up having to stop any and all of it. When I started having problems, I started feeling tired on training. and I was like, well, there's crappy weeks. If I just run through this, you know, cause of course the answer wasn't rest. The answer was if I keep, Pounding yeah. away, doing these doubles and and doing my sleep and doing – I'm I'm going to come back around, and I didn't. I mean, I was still fast, but I started getting a little bit slower and a little bit slower and ran that 50-miler and then tried to go out like two weeks later and run a marathon and go out a week later to Boulder and then Boulder rolled a 10K and, shockingly, started having some problems. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: yeah, and that's where that began – a f- series of injuries and I really am going to need to make long story short at some point because you're going to, I'm going to be talking for three hours here, but well, let me, <laughs> let
0: me I kind of, I, I kind of want to back up. Yeah. I want to talk about something because I think it's kind of interesting, like your story and the fact that, so you qualify for the 2012 trials, but you got the qualifier in 2010, mm-hmm. but we go back even 2 years before that and you and that was your fastest marathon ever so yeah. you know from start line in 2012 in arguably probably the biggest marathon you'd had ever done to that point right. like we would have to go back 3 years and change to get to your fastest time so yeah like from a mindset perspective I mean, it seems like you're kind of coming in limping. You're kind of like going, man, I mean, do I have this still? Like what, you know, what's sure. going on? I haven't run a fast time in a long time. Like I got my standard, but man, I was a standard good a couple of years before that. Like what's the deal, right? Like what's going sure. on? Sure.
1: Of course you want to. I realized when I had that second breakthrough, like 237, I realized that at that point it was fine tuning and I think at one point I felt like I really should be able to run a 235 right now. Just according like, you know, because you get into, used to crunching the numbers. Like I felt like I should be able to run, run that. But also, you know, when I say I, I didn't run a personal best, but I ran several marathons that were 240 to 245 or 240, between 240 and 250. So it wasn't just like, oh, you've just fallen off. But I think the races that I was choosing to try to focus on to run fast, I wasn't balancing that. What did you call it earlier? The paradox. So I was doing. I was putting putting up times that I wasn't going after a fast time, and then at the races that I was going after a fast time, I wasn't hitting it. But I don't think I ever really felt like, oh wow, I'm not fit. It was just like I was always. I was kind of. I was wanting and I was hunting, but I, I still had what kept me going was well, number one, I just enjoyed it so much all of it. Like it, I want, I, I wanted to spend time with the friends. I wanted to go do the traveling. I mean, of course it felt great when I had a win, but I think it was just, I did feel like I could see the progression and I had some personal bests in other distances over that time. So it wasn't like everything's declining. So I don't think I ever felt like, Oh, I'm falling apart. I just felt like, dang it. Why can't I put it together in the marathon on the right day? Yeah. yeah.
0: Okay. All right. So after, you know, the trials, you go do, you know, little rock, you set another personal best, but then you talk about the fact that like your coach said, all right, you can do whatever you want. You were like, okay, cool. You're not even keeping track. You're just racing a ton. You go to boulder, boulder, 10 K, right? Oh, that was so and then awful. you start kind of feeling, you, st- you said you start having problems, right? Yeah. So, I mean, what, like injuries, yeah. just not feeling right. I well, mean, I probably, so body start breaking down. So
1: between. And I'm not, I'm not going to go, but just, just to put the numbers of races, I'm not, there's not, I'm not trying to back this up too much, but yeah, I did the trials and then I did a few marathons as training races or runs leading up to Little Rock in March. And then I did a few more, you know, cause they were around the state or for whatever reason or this one had money. Oh, I can make some money. And I had going back to Green Bay had always been a plan and I had that targeted as place to run a personal best but oh I decided I wanted to run this 50 mile race and that was early May then I go to and and in there in like April May I was starting to feel real fatigued but at that point it wasn't injury I just felt fatigued. Went to Green Bay Marathon. They ended up actually canceling the race because of heat. But when I got, anyways, I, I won't go on that tangent, but that was a funny race. But went out to Boulder, Boulder, had a terrible race. I don't know if it was because I was already working with an injury or if it was because of the altitude or, I mean, gosh, it could just be all like the eight marathons I'd done that year. But I was frustrated with, it had been a, it had been a trip that I was like doing double duty because Matt Hill keeps getting brought up in this story, but my college roommate, former teammate, and I know you know Matt or probably remember Matt, he was getting married. So I was like, well, I can go out for Matt's wedding and run Boulder Boulder because God forbid I just go out for Matt's wedding and, you know, enjoy myself. And I got so frustrated with my run that I think it was like the evening of Boulder Boulder. I decided I should go out and run for like an hour because my bad race had to be because i wasn't fit which was ignorant i mean i was so grasping at straws to feel good like i had been before and something i remember feeling my hamstring really tighten up or something just didn't feel right like i i remember stopping a couple of times kind of working it out but it didn't feel great but there was such between going home from that race and the following little rock marathon in 2013 I can't tell you how many different things I tried to find the reason I was having trouble. And I'm sure there was forced rest in there as well. There was physical therapy. There was doing stuff just on an elliptical instead of running. Um, And we treated, we tried everything. Like, I'm trying to think of all the things the doctor said. Well, I ended up going to the doctor because I had also, I'd been invited to run New York as an invited athlete that year. And so I was just like, I went to the doctor and I was like, I'm supposed to be running New York marathon and my leg's not, it doesn't feel, it feels like it, it, it doesn't work. Like I, I just feel like when I try to go out and run, like I can't, I can't even explain it. I just, I can't do it. Like something's not right. So, well, I think I remember him saying, I think you might have a torn glute or a torn something. And I was just like, well, can, is there anything you can do? And he said, I can give you a steroid shot in the muscle, and when you get to race week, so I can probably give you. I probably shouldn't even be, be saying this. I don't. I don't. I don't know what was. I don't know how much pain medication you're supposed to be able to take before a race, because generally I wouldn't think that just from a mind perspective that would even be a good idea. Because he said I can. I can give you pain meds that will probably get you to mile ten. And Whoa. yeah. Huh. And and I was just like, I mean, that's not even the way I want to run. I don't want to go there and not finished so I contacted the 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 coordinator for the marathon and I said I'm just going to be honest with you like you've invited me to come up and I really want to come and start but I don't know that I'll be able to finish and I don't know that I'll make it 5k and he said you've earned this trip I I want you to come because I was paid to. I mean not paid less Like like all my expenses and everything were covered. I want you to come. Just know that uh, he's like our first station where you'd be able to drop would be at X kilometer mark. And I don't remember what it even was. And I was like, okay, traveled up there. And I truly was worried that I wouldn't be able to keep pace with the elite women's field for 100 meters. But that was the year of Hurricane Sandy. So I never had to start. (laughs) So Uh divine intervention. I think I was the only and I felt so guilty. We were already were up there. And they start, people start, you know, the city starts buzzing. Oh, they've canceled the marathon. I canceled the marathon. And I'm like, there's half of me. Well, I'm more than half. There's 80, 90% of me that's just like, this is so awful and sad. And the people talk about, you know, I met guys who's like, they'd flown internationally and their international flight lands. They're there to run the marathon. The first thing they see on the news is it's canceled. But meanwhile, there's this person deep down inside me that's like, you just got your ass saved. (laughs) So, sorry, that was a long story, but it was worth telling. But, um, from that doctor to, and and I don't, you know, he said, Oh, maybe it's bursitis, maybe it's this, maybe it's that. At the same time, my coach happened to start having problems with some nerve stuff in his back. So I'm like, That's the same thing I'm having. We went, I had x rays on my back. I had dry needling. I had acupuncture. I had physical care, everything to try and fix it. And, couldn't ever really come up with something I was satisfied with because it was like, well, if it's this, then this should have worked. And if it was this, then this should have worked. So it's like, no, it's something else. And I was still able to run. It was just like I couldn't run like I used to. And was supposed to run the Little Rock Marathon because that's, you know, that's my hometown race. That was, I'd had a, I'd won it a few times in a row. So I had this the backing of the city and I was like, I've got, this is not going to end well, but I need to go and start. And I guess it was probably I was I knew the girl who was racing who I was racing against you know she we'd raced against each other the past few years and I thought well if I can fake her out and make her think that I'm going to run a time faster than I think I'm going to run if I can hold out that long maybe she'll drop off and that's the only shot I have at getting at winning and when she put a move on me around eight miles in I tried to follow her and my, oh my gosh, I was, I was done. I couldn't, I could my, my leg was not working. And because I'm stubborn and an idiot, instead of just dropping out, I was like, well, I'm going to run in the rest of the half marathon course anyway, because then I'll feel like I didn't quit, but I couldn't walk after I stopped that. And then I finally went and had an MRI, which when I got the MRI on my low back, I just kind of was under the assumption that you know, surely they can see my whole, they can probably see from my upper thigh to my mid back. So they're looking for anything. Well, that was wrong. And if anybody listening is having an issue like that, and it's like, well, they looked at my back and they didn't mention my hip. Well, if it's not an MRI of your hip, they're not looking at your hip. Because when I got the MRI of my hip, my hamstring was nearly completely detached. And if it was three centimeters retracted, which means like I'd been running on a torn hamstring for a long time, and it was basically like three centimeters isn't a huge gap, but when you picture your hamstring, like, it's not going to reach itself and heal anymore. Like, it can't, the little fibers are like, oh, my friend's up there, I can't reach. You know, they're not, they're, it was about to separate and tear in half, so I had to have surgery to reattach my hamstring. And I'm gonna pause there because I know I'm so this is supposed to be about cycling, right? Can I can, no, I, that's good. can I be no, any more all no, over the board?
0: <laughs> it is not supposed to be about cycling or anything really in specific. I mean, this is cool because this is part of your yeah. story and you know, as I've said, we are gonna get into the cycling <laughs> part now. And you're racing for the you know, one of the one of the teams at the highest level of the sport. So just again, like if you're listening, there's some really cool highs and there's some really lows you know low points and there's this everything in the middle like this is it's not sexy like this is, this, is, this is the story right? it is not like, like you know you may have had maybe a little bit more hardship than the guy next door that's also a professional cyclist at this point or maybe you have less right like maybe that guy's dealing with has dealt with more than you or that girl, but like the point of you know, all of this interviews is everybody's got a story and like we're not sitting around here telling jokes and laughing the whole time. Like it's hard on any level for anybody to do anything and be successful at it. It doesn't matter. Pro cyclist, amateur cyclist, you know, amateur, you know, bowler, like it doesn't matter. Like all of it, anything to be good and stretch yourself to your utmost perform to your, to your limit. Like that takes some really cool mountaintops that you can see from and be happy about and it also takes a lot of valleys that you're in and that where you're not feeling so good so no by by no means is this uh you know this is all this is all great and great discussion so but let's okay so you're you kind of have a problem with your hamstring there like it's kind of a big deal right so you end up getting that fixed up and then you talk about how in that you Get into cycling, right? You get into like you get a bicycle.
1: Well, right? no, but for the sake of that, I know I have drawn this out. I know you want do want all the story, but I'll give a I'll give the the condensed version of that was um I had a surgery to reattach my hamstring in March of 2013, and that hamstring actually has healed up fantastic, all good to go there. But that was the first of what would end up being four surgeries in the next three years. The hamstring stayed good the opposing leg's knee ended up having a lot of issues. I don't – it's hard to say if they were related. You know, was the knee really the problem first and the hamstring tore from super compensating or did the knee on the opposing leg have to support me so much when I was recovering from that hamstring that it started having problems? But at the end of the day, I did get back to running. That fall, ran a few – ran another marathon, went back to redeem my title in 2014 – at Little Rock, but that, so that was March of 2014, April of 2014, I was running a 10k, and when I crossed the finish line, it was just like, I, I I don't even know what had happened to my knee, but it was like, I went down to the ground, and ended up having a scope, like a simple surgery, still got back to running, but never really was quite the same, like, my knee felt bad, it's still, and it's like, well, it's healing from its surgery, but it was just a different kind of, I couldn't quite figure out What was wrong? And I I ran a marathon that fall, and after that marathon, uh, and it wasn't, you know, it was 2:49, which isn't a bad time, but it wasn't what it used to be. And I went back to my doc, and you know, he said, "Well, let's 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 give it give it six more weeks of anti-inflammatories and maybe a little bit of rest." And it's like I was so tired of. I was like, I know my body. Like my body's been through some crap, and I'm no doctor, but this isn't inflammation. Like. Something is not right, you know. And I was like, clearly, if I ran on, if I ran for nine months on a tearing off hamstring, I can tolerate some pain. But this isn't. There's something wrong. So oh. I started looking into yeah. going to get some get second opinions and went to see one doc, and he said, ultimately, he's you like, know, your 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 knee is messed up. But ultimately, you'll probably need surgery to repair it. And uh, he said you could try stem cell treatment if you're trying to just, because I had run a qualifying time for the 2016 trials. So I was wanting my redemption now at the trials. And this is 2015, but I'm not, you know, I'm not, I've got the time, on which actually it turns out that my time was not at a sanctioned race. So I would have had to find another race and re-qualified, but it became a moot point. So Well, we'll, (laughs) it's been just, I'm I'm throwing that in there to say like, it's just, it talk about, it's certainly not been a smooth road. But he was saying, at the time, I didn't know that it wasn't sanctioned time. So we were talking about how can we get me to the start line at the trials. And he said, sorry, this was 2014, not 15. He said, you could have a stem cell. Well, stem cell was really new. I don't know if it's covered at all now, but at the time, it was, you could get it done, but it was going to be out of pocket. Insurance didn't There wasn't enough evidence of it being a good therapy. So it was going to cost five grand just to have this done in my knee. And and there's no guarantee that it's going to work. But I had scheduled it. I was just like, let's do it. Like, I don't know what other avenue to take. And so I've got this appointment, had this stem cell treatment done. And there's someone in our community who is also, uh, also a doctor. I worked at a running shoe store at the time. And this doc came and told my coach, well, I'll just go with, point being, this doctor found my coach. <laughs> I think I wasn't working there anymore, but my coach owned the store. So he went and found him. He said, I've heard one of your athletes is getting ready to have this treatment. And so, you know, as, as, as a doctor, I can't I can't give prescribing, especially like I haven't seen her as a patient, but I just, I'm concerned because based on what I think is probably like going on with her knee, I think she's going to be wasting money. And he told me this, and he's and I said, well, what am I supposed to do? And he's like, well, I think you should go and see this guy and let him and talk to him about it, hear what he has really to say, because he'd known some therapists that I'd he he had some background from other sources, you know, he he I knew enough people in the community that this guy had heard word and all these things, and I went to see him, and he did an MRI and. When I sat down with him, my coach went with me because I think he knew it wasn't going to be good. And I don't really know what I expected to hear, but he basically was just like, you need to go see a complex. There's a complex knee guy in Vail. You need to go and see him. There's a few things he might be able to do to fix this, but we're not. He's like, the Olympic trials is off the table. Like, I don't know if you'll be able to run. Anymore. I'm just talking about you having a normal life and not needing a knee replacement at 35. Wow. And I was, and, and seriously, you know, my brain wanted to be like, but can I run with a knee replacement? And yeah. it's just, but it was like, you can only have. I mean, I know technology always improving, so, the, but it's like the longer you can put that off, because when you have a knee replacement, as things currently stand, they need to be replaced every 10 to 15 years, and you can only have two. Like your body's they only know for sure it'll hold up to two. And it's like, well, then what happens if I have one now and I have another one, then what happens when I'm 55? It's like, you're in a wheelchair. So it was, and I think when I completely broke down, I mean, just like, you know, I mean, I'm sitting there trying to talk to the guy, but it's just like rivers are coming out of my eyes. And he's like, is this the first time anyone's talked to you about your knee disease? And I'm just like, knee disease? Like, I'm just like, what? (laughs) So he didn't realize that I, this is the first I've really heard, like, your knee's real screwed up. You know, I'd heard, like, oh, we can repair your meniscus. Like, there's a tear in it, and we it might be able to repair it. If we cut it out, there's not going to be enough meniscus left to support, blah, 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 blah. He's like, no, you've got a massive defect on the end of your femur that, like, you have basically no cartilage left. Your meniscus is, is torn off at the root. And so how I continued to run through all this, I really don't know. Once I finally heard what was wrong with it, but it wasn't an option. And as far as, like, the defect goes, it's something that typical. It's, it's not that, it's not super atypical for a runner to have that deterioration of the, the end of the bone, but a typical size of the defect would be 3 to 5 millimeters, and mine was 22. So it was like... Oh. centimeters so the majority of the head of my femur was destroyed so yeah I I didn't really know what option I had at that point except to have this surgery and was really blessed in that I had a massive support system in the running community here and they ended up putting a fundraiser together because I had to go stay in Vail Colorado to have the surgery and I went out there and I had it and it was and that was when so it was I had to have one surgeon said so we can try to do a microfracture treatment and it might regrow some into that defect but it's so large it probably won't work and you're probably going to need a bone graft with this which essentially is they would cut a plug out of my bone and replace it with a plug of cadaver bone to replace that damaged area but But your knee's too messed up to handle the bone graft without first replacing everything else that's wrong with your knee. So we're going to do this first surgery, and while we're in there, we'll try to do the microfracture treatment, which is they drill up into the bone and try to make it grow out new cells. So we'll try to do that. I don't expect it to fix it, but we'll give it a shot. So I went out there and had that surgery, the initial surgery to repair everything in May. And he said, okay, in three months, we need to check on it. And if everything's healing according to the schedule, we'll put you on a list for a donor for the bone. So while I was, so enter cycling, while I was in Vail recovering from the first surgery, I registered for a 100-mile bike ride that September, and I didn't own a bike (laughs) yet. (laughs) But I figured that that was my motivation. Now, it wasn't like... Oh, shoot, I lost $35 if I didn't ride it. But I knew if I signed up and and made the – I knew if I made the commitment, I knew I would ride it unless, like, I had bought a bike and it was a total and utter fail. But that was my plan was get a bike, learn how to ride a bike, (laughs) ride in this Grand Fondo. (laughs) So I was on crutches for, I think, six weeks or eight weeks, and my first ride – I went and bought a bike and it was my bike buying process was I walked into the store and one of my friends was one of the owners and he said, I can make you a great deal on this bike right here. And I said, I will take that bike right there. I didn't (laughs) even look at anything. I didn't research anything. So like my bike knowledge is, is still not on par with a pro cyclist, but I've learned a lot in the past two years. But that was my first bike. My first bike ride was July 2nd of 2015. And I just started riding and enjoying it. I was I wasn't I, racing was not on my mind. It was meeting new people and going out and having a good time and having because I knew I had to find an alternative form of exercise. And you know the first two things that come to mind are cycling and swimming. And I don't like really working out indoors if I can help it. Well which is funny I say that and then I talk about everything that's happened with Zwift. But I don't know. I don't I've never liked swimming. Maybe it's because <laughs> I'm a runner and I associate it with being injured. I don't know. I just have never I was like it's gonna be cycling. So I just rode and was having fun and knew that this was something to keep me fit until my next surgery. And I did complete that hundred mile ride and then ended up going November, I don't know, early November. I don't remember the date exactly on that one, but going back for the bone graft. And that was a bit more complicated surgery. There was, I wouldn't be able to do any high impact activity for at least a year. I was on crutches for 12 weeks. And then, so I spent a lot of time on crutches in those three years. Like it's I think I've got four pairs of crutches. It's ridiculous. Yeah. And when I was, so so, I cycled from July to November, and then I was on crutches from November until the next year. I think I got off them late January. And at that point, I was told I could get on a bike, but not outdoors because of the risk of falling, it wasn't worth it what I could do to, to undo the progress with, the recovery of that bone. So they said just indoor only, which, you know, I mean, I, I understood at this point, I was pretty, I was getting to be professional at rolling with the punches with regard to what you were and were not allowed to do because it was like any, mm. when you do, when you've been through that many surgeries, it's just like, oh, I can walk with my own feet right now. This is amazing. You start to learn to have a new yeah. appreciation, but, but I, I, had, I had never liked the treadmill. I thought riding on an indoor bike sounds like, A treadmill on a bike and in the very first days my boyfriend had like an old just it's just a spinner you know you put it's not not rollers but it's just a stationary that just a basic that you put your bike on and, and spin so when I was doing like okay I can I can spin for 20 minutes today it was fine but as I was getting up to like okay I can do an hour now I'm going to need to do something else. Like it was, it was boring and it was loud. Oh, the thing was so loud. And people started talking to me about, you should try this Wahoo kicker trainer and you can, you can do like, it's a smart trainer. It talks to your computer. And I was like, I don't even know what you're talking about, but it's (laughs) I'll try it because it sounds like maybe it will be more fun. And that's where I learned about Zwift and well, ends up being funny later. My friend's, Tom and Missy, she started cycling with me. I made her, I was like, you need to buy a bike and do this with me. And she, she, she didn't fall in love with the outdoors like I did, but she fell in love with the trainer. And she said, Hey, Tom saw this article about this, uh, because she knew I was using Zwift. And she said that Zwift is doing like a competition where the winner gets a pro contract and you should totally do it because you would win. And I, I read the article about it immediately, but I, the comment, you know, was water off a duck's back, because in the years of competitive running, you get to, people have warped opinions of, you know, it's like, I win the Little Rock Marathon, therefore they think that I can win Boston, and win New York, and win, you know, so it's like, I didn't, it was sweet, but I didn't take to heart, like, could I really win? Like, it was so far from what I thought was reality, that I was reading it to see what it was about, but I never considered, like, Maybe I could win. And I remember reading it and thinking, well, this is really, this is interesting. And I wonder what type of cyclist, like I wonder what the winner, like who would that be in my, you know, what would it take? But it wasn't like a what would it take in the way that I looked at the Olympic trials, like because I think I can do it. I was just like, you know, it's just one of those things where you sit and kind of daydream for a moment. And then it's like, well, that looks like fun. Like whenever it was advertising, but it wasn't started yet. So I was like, yeah, I'd be, I'd be down to try that. And I didn't give it really another thought. So I started doing Zwift on a regular basis. It became, I was working in a full-time job, so it became my thing. It was it was actually great. I could get up at 4 in the morning, and I could get two hours of cycling in before I got to go to work. So I was still disciplined with it, but I wasn't, again, not trying to be competitive. Well, one morning, as I log in, this thing pops up, like, Zwift Academy, register now. And I was just like, oh, yeah, that's that thing that Tom and Missy were telling me about, like – <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna sign up and I told I texted her I was like hey I signed up for that Zwift Academy and she's like oh yeah and you know same thing you're like you're gonna you're just gonna crush it I'm like I don't even know. I don't know how many people are gonna be entered I don't know what the competition's gonna be like I don't all it was for me was something fun to mix it up it looked like something that would you know because I was literally getting on and it's like Swift is for anyone who doesn't know about Zwift, it's like it's a virtual training platform so you get in there and and if you have a smart trainer your trainer talks to the software and the computer, and it's like you're in a video game, except you're controlling it with your bike. And you know, when you go up a hill, you actually feel it. You can get in there and you can race, and you actually feel a draft effect. Like it's really, it's 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 mind blowing to me how all of that works. But I was just riding, and you can go in and you can select from different workout plans, races. I wasn't doing any of those, so I thought this will get me into exploring a bit more of a challenge than just doing you know 30, 40 miles every morning. At whatever pace feels good that day. So I signed up, and the way the program worked was from July to September, you had 27 workouts you had to complete. There was no schedule. I mean, if you wanted to do it to yourself, you could complete them all, and you could do five in a day. But I mean, I wouldn't have recommended it. But it was you just had you had to get them done. You had to get them done by the end of September, and then you had to do nine group rides with. So there were specific Zwift Academy group rides, just kind of. Get to know other writers. People will chat on the, on the screen. You know, you can text or you can get in these chat rooms or whatever. So you had to complete that. And then from there ended up being about 1200 women that signed up. Then they were selecting 10 semifinalists. They ended up taking 12, but it was, they selected 12 semifinalists. And somewhere along the way, I received an email that said, you know, we've noticed that you've had some pretty strong performances. We we would like to learn a bit more about you. I mean, it was like, you know, don't, not everyone is getting this survey. So please don't mention it. But it by no means is saying that you're going through. It's just, you know, they have 1,200 women. They need to, they wanted to look more specifically at, they like, it would be hard to really dig into 1,200. So at that point, I kind of thought, oh, wow, like, At that point, it sunk in that maybe, you know, because you're getting on these group rides and it's like I know based on time zones, I was usually riding with the same people. So I might have an idea. Well, I might be among the 10 strongest in this group, but Hmm. I don't know what other people are doing in other times of the day. You know, I know it's, it's always me and these same girls. But then when I got that message, I thought, okay, I'm being watched. So. Then it got like my. Ba- I was just like, I just want to make it to the semifinals. Like, how cool would that be to make it to the semifinals? And and then I, I made it to the semifinals. And I mean, on top of it just being exciting and and gratifying, we got a kicker snap trainer, we got a cork power meter, we got the Canyon Sram kit. So it was like there was some rewards involved as well. But it just all of it as a whole, I was like. Oh, I made it to the semifinals, and um, and so the semifinals ran from September to the end of November. And there, the it changed a little bit. I think we had like one workout a week to be done indoors, one to be done outdoors with the power meter, and then we also had to do one group ride or race on Zwift each week of our choice. And that got to be, I, I think I really wanted to believe that I had a shot. But if I was at that point we all could kind of psycho-stalk each other, too. You know, with 1,200 women, it was like, I don't have any idea, but it's like, now it was 12 of us. You can watch. And, you know, I had picked out, okay, this girl's definitely going through. This one is probably... And it's like, if I'm being 100% honest, I had myself rank. It It, it got beyond, like, two or three. It got very gray area with everybody else. So it was just like, man, you know, I... I I don't, I really want to think I have a chance, but I feel like maybe I'm going to let myself down. But it was, um, it was a grind. It was just like, you've got to push yourself and show yourself and just really go for it. And the day that, that the, so that from the 12 at the end of those two months, they selected three that would go to Mallorca with the Canyon SRAM team and spend 10 days, at their team training camp. And there also became, at that point, it was this, like, it was this kind of joke among my friends that it was funny at the time until, until it was real. But I was kind of thinking, can y'all imagine, like, because I had, I had been on my bike for a year. My handling was like you would expect from a 37 year old who's been on the bike for a year. You know, it was, <laughs> I couldn't <laughs> ride without my right hand on the handlebars. So, I, I wasn't good at corners. I would think I'd done maybe four races and the largest field was probably 15. So I started, th- you know, we kind of had this joke about, can you imagine, like, if I were to make it to Mallorca and then they're going to, because all they can see is your speed and your power output. There's nothing, there was nothing. no way for them to gauge your technical skills from those numbers. And I was just like, they're going to be like, how did you get here? You know, and it's like, and then it happened. <laughs> and then suddenly, uh-huh. I, which, I mean, obviously, it wasn't a, a total disaster. It ended up working out okay for me. But um, but there was definitely a moment of, oh, gosh, like as exciting as this is and as excited as I am to go to Mallorca and spend time with this girl, like are they going to look at me and be like, are you serious? Like how, why, what, how are you here? But, yeah, obviously, um, needless to say, I made the finals. Spent a week in Mallorca with the team, and at the end, I think that week, more than anything, they knew as far as strength and power, they knew how strong we all were, they knew, but they wanted to see how we did handle the bike and how we meshed with the staff and the team. So, yeah, we spent 10 days there, and on the last day, I was offered the grand prize, which was a contract with Canon SRAM for 2017.
0: Yeah, that that's so cool. I didn't know how the academy worked. I mean, you know, there's a lot of articles going around and they basically say, yeah, you know, you got on a trainer and they slowly started cutting people out and you just kind of kept moving on in the rounds and then at the end you get the contract. But it's kind of neat to hear the ins and outs of how they slowly, you know, they slowly were like, okay, you've obviously got an engine, you can ride a trainer inside and you can do this. Okay, you've got good numbers, but now we want you to do some stuff outside. Okay, now we're going to bring you to camp. And then one of the cool things that I want to make sure you kind of, and you, you alluded to it is when you were out there in Mallorca, when you're in Spain, like they're wanting to see like the intangible stuff that, like you said, they can't tell from behind a computer screen, which is how well do you get along with the other girls? How well do you get along with the staff? Right. Like how, you know, how much of a team player are you? And probably to a certain extent, like, how are you handling the pressure? This, yeah. Right. Like, you know, like, what's your story? Oh, my story is I've been riding a bicycle for a year. OK, <laughs> uh, are you scared or are you excited? Like, are you willing to take this challenge on? Do you have a good attitude? Can you quite frankly, like, can you accept the fact that you're going to be racing at the highest level? And <laughs> you're, you're not ready. There's no way you're ready. Stuff you don't know. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So you know, I, I like that was the last kind of thing, and then you get the nada, which is super awesome. And I remember, I mean, just because I know you, and, I, and you know, I knew you from back in college and stuff. I was like, "Holy cow, this is unbelievable! <laughs> this is so cool!" I was like, "Oh my gosh, this is great!" So then you're in. I'm in. Right? And so now you're in. Talk to us about, I know that they started you off doing some kermesses, which for those people that are listening, you know, kermesses are kind of like American-style racing here, criteriums in the United States, but it's, it's a higher level than American criteriums, American-style criteriums, so it's still a step up. I mean, you're racing in the mecca of cycling in Belgium, for the most part, but they start you off doing those instead of just throwing you into, like, full tilt, like, UCI, pro tour, like, events, but... How, how did that kind of start off and how did you kind of get your feet wet? Well,
1: so, and actually that's, that's close, but not 100% correct. It was a little, so the first, I did a few kermesses in January, but they were actually in Australia. Actually, it was one kermess and two crits, and the crits were on like a, like a, a track, like a race car track, so it was, it was not real technical. It was round in circles and racing with the men, because at that point I didn't, I don't think I had this was January. You know, I made the team in December. They wanted to give me some ex- – the team was down there doing two or down under, and they wanted to give me some experience in a bigger crowd, whatever, without throwing me right into UCI. But basically I rode three races with the men. And then when I went over to Europe, my first race was just right into a UCI. It was uh, Umlup, uh Van I, – I can't – I don't speak Dutch – Van at Hoagland. He- Hagland, Hogland. That that was my, yeah, he, New New. It wasn't New Blood. It was Hogland, which is a couple weeks later. But oh, okay. yeah, my first experience in—I mean, it was just like straight into—I don't know—180 women <laughs> Belgian streets and roads. <laughs> and I have never been so nervous. I don't think for anything in my life. And <laughs> it was just kind of one of those things where it's like you—you know—you—you you have to just go and do it. I think it would be less horrifying for somebody who has any sort of background in races, like has more experience cycling. But even if somebody's been, you know, in smaller races in the U.S. to go over there and and be in that big a crowd and they race so close and on the narrow roads and cobblestones and – You have to just, you know, there's there's nothing any of my teammates or any any of the staff, there's nothing anybody could say that would have made me more prepared. They could tell me what it was going to be like, but as far as getting comfortable in the Peloton, the only way to do it is just to be in it. And I didn't do a great job of being in it that first, well, actually, I'm still working on being super comfortable in the Peloton, but that first day I spent a lot of time chasing off the back before eventually DNFing. But I finished my second race, so, but yeah, it was, uh, I, I, I can't even put into words what it was like to go from a Cat 4 race in Arkansas <laughs> to the UCI Pro Peloton. <laughs> it was as insane as it sounds.
0: Yeah, I mean, just me knowing what I know about cycling, like, that is just, <laughs> I mean, that's just crazy that it would happen like that, but again, I mean, just the so you were put in that position, uh well, you put right. yourself in that position, right. you signed up, and then you get it, but you stuck it out. And so one of the things, you know, I read an article the other day, and one of the things that you talk about is the fact that you got kind of motivated at the fact that you were seeing DNF, 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 you know, oh, finish one, and then DNF, then finish one. And then if you look at your results, if anybody pulls up your results for this past season, like, you did. You started off with a lot of DNFs. And then at the end of the year, you're pretty much finishing yeah. everything. Yeah. You know, uh, so you did get better and you did learn and you did adopt this whole like, I need to take this all in and apply and learn, really learn on the fly. Yeah. And in the span of just a year, one season, you were actually able to make a huge amount of progress. Yeah. So I thought that was really neat.
1: Yeah, I definitely, I mean, I saw huge progress. It is, you know, again, to go back to your question about the pressure, and I said, you know, I've definitely felt it more in the latter parts of my career than back in college. I think as the season went on, I did improve, but I felt mounting pressure, and most of it, you know, self-applied, but it's just when you are putting on the jersey of one of the top world tour teams, I think for the first half of the season, particularly it's like everybody did understand that I came from no background and there'd be a learning curve. But then as the time goes by and you know, your entire team is the front of the Peloton and you're on the back, you know, if the team has a great day, it, you, it, it's, it's so awesome to see. And you're just like, man, I want to be part of that. And you're part of the team, but you know that you contributed nothing that day to their success. So it's like, it's, it's a delicate, it's a it's a tough balance because it's like I'm seeing progress individually, but it's not an individual sport, and I'm not racing for me. So I, I had to be, I had to see myself enough positives to keep myself in a good mental space. But I think, you know, looking ahead into the next year, I need to, I gave myself a lot of grace. Not to say I'd just be like, oh, well, no big deal. Like, I always tried, but there are certain things like, you talk about the mental aspect of it, the mindset training of it that, I mean, I'm, I'm still working on from everything from just, I mean, <laughs> I've been reading and trying to read some self-help thing, not particularly about cycling, but just to try to get the mindset you need to get in there for me. I guess they've been doing and maybe it's, maybe it gets to be where you're more focused on. Am I fit enough? I didn't really know. I mean, there's so much strategy in cycling, and to be able to put it perfectly into play. You have to be confident. You have to. And if you're not, I won't, I, can't, I won't say, oh, it's not fun, because the whole experience has been fun for me. But it would be a lot more fun if, when I was celebrating my with my team, you know, I had a few experiences in the, the season where, on the day, I was able to create something to help my team. The way the feeling. Then, well, I had a great result today, even though you guys never saw me. I finished better than I've finished. Because, you know, I mean, it's not, it's about you rather than proving you, but, but the result that day isn't about me. So definitely, I think I'm going to have a lot more pressure from the team and from myself, or I'm going to hold myself accountable to a higher standard in a second year. It's just like, okay, you proved that. You are improving you prove that you're willing to put in the work and you're willing to stick it out. But I feel like it's time to stop t- kind of telling myself at the end of the day, well, you did your best. I'm not sure. It's, it's hard. It's a hard thing for me to put in words. I don't want it to sound like I'll, I'll always be proud and happy with personal progress. But I also think that there comes a time when you have to switch the mindset from like, well, just do, you know, Last year was a learning year. I think going forward, it has to be, it has to be more.
0: Yeah. Let's talk about that. So you got got renewed. renewed. (laughs) So they brought you (laughs) you on one year contract, right? They liked what they saw. So again, just to kind of go back, I mean, in terms of results, there's nothing there that says, oh man, you know, she's a hitter. Like we want her back. Like she's going to deliver, you know, the goods this next year. But here's what they did see. They did see somebody who took the bull by the horns. Hey, we set you up in pretty much a, a pretty, pretty perilous position yeah. here, right? Let's, let's be honest. You came out. You're alive. You've learned. You've gotten better. You still have a great attitude. You know, you've gotten along well with the team. Like you've done all these things. So, you know what? We're going to, we don't have to do this, but we're going to extend you, uh, you know, your contract another year. And so, you know, congratulations. You know, you know, you're you're on the team again, which is awesome. So, but like like you said, now that you're year two in the Pro Peloton, like what are you looking forward sure. to? What are you looking to do? Um, you
1: know, something I had talked to some of my teammates about as the season was going, and and they would, I mean, not they would give me some advice, or I would ask them for questions, and some of the things we talked about, like you can work on something. Like if, I mean, I was asking them to dig back into their files from when they first learned things. It's like, you know, sometimes it takes like sleeping on it for it to kind of click And that seasons can almost be like that. Like you might struggle with something all one season and work on making progress, but not feel like there's progress. But then when you come back next season, there's growth. Like you had to have that off season of quote unquote sleeping on it. So I'm hopeful do now know. I don't mean this to be without work, but you just said, "What am I looking forward to?" I'm looking forward to lining up my first race, and I I will never line up for a bike race in my life ever without being nervous as hell and um a little bit terrified because it's you can be you can be the best bike handler on the planet and there's unpredictable things in cycling that it can be dangerous. So I won't say like, "Oh, I w- I look forward to lining up and not being scared." Well, no, but I think it's a different fear, it's a different set of nerves when if I can line up with a bit more confidence and just not being so intimidated as I was last year. So I'm hoping to see some progress there. And then also I'm dedicating, you know, I'm, I'm going to get some specific technical training in the next few months in the off season that I hope will answer some questions that I've had about, you know, there's, there's some things that are easy to explain to someone new how to do. And then there's other things that you really can't, you, you have to learn by doing, you have to learn by feel. And it's hard to explain, but I'm going to work with a coach out in California and just to get some basics, because while I'm in a race, in a Peloton, I can say, well, every time I do this, it doesn't feel right. But number one, my teammates aren't around me. Number two, if they were, they aren't going to be looking at me going, huh, well, what did you do there that, I mean, they might, but certainly isn't their job or their focus. And so I come back home, you know, and in a training ride, it's, it's hard to even recreate the same thing. So I'm hoping that between just having a year under my belt and being a bit more marginally more confident and then just having worked on some doing some things to make my personal mindset off the bike working on my own confidence I feel like that will translate I mean that might sound silly but actually it probably doesn't sound silly to you at all (laughs) I think think, (laughs) no not at all it, whenever I say this to people, they're just like, really? And I think it's because I'm, I'm friendly and can be loud and obviously long-winded. So it's like when I say I've always struggled with self-confidence, they're just like, no, you don't. And I'm just like, well, don't tell me I don't because I've lived in this body for 38 years and I do every single day, but I've never been great, I guess, about working on it. And I've, and I mean, all, when I say I'm working on it, all I'm really doing at the moment is like, I'm reading, <laughs> but but it's made a huge change for me and how I feel on a day-to-day basis. And I'm not only reading like self books, just like just reading, exercising your brain. I think it makes it feel and I'm, and I'm off the bike right now, so I can't promise, but I would, I'm hopeful that that will translate into better confidence on the bike as well. So I'm just, as far as what I'm looking forward to, I think it's going to be another emotionally challenging year, but, but in a different way. And I think, I I just, I think I'm going to be able to approach it with, a bit more confidence, which should yield better results.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's a natural progression, right? Like you're going to expect more of yourself this next season. That's just natural. Like, you know, you've got a baseline, right? Your baseline was this past season. So for this next season, you know, why are you even there if you're not thinking to yourself, I want to do better. And so doing better the next season, whatever that happens to look like. But again, using your previous experience in running and reminding yourself that, Hey, At the same time that I want to do better, same time that I want to, you know, get better results or be able to better help the team or, you know, strengthen my mindset or whatever it is that you're looking at in terms of your goals, understanding that there's also that left side of like being fun and not caring. And we've got to find that happy medium so that this can be something that you can do for years and years and years and years and and hopefully not have to go through some of the situations with the running where it's like you got to the point where like all of a sudden things start kind of falling apart and we kind of start having to, but again, all that to say, and this is, you know, coming from a mindset coach, like all that to say this story is it's who you are and look at where you are, right? Like, it's not like we didn't talk about, you shared your story, but you didn't talk about your knee injury being the yeah. worst thing that ever happened. You didn't talk about not getting the marathon a standard as a worst thing that ever happened. You didn't talk about, I mean, We're just talking about events in your life and how when we string them all together, we've got you over here on the other side and you're a two-year professional (laughs) cyclist at this point. You've been in professional cycling for two years. And it's like all of it works together if you have the attitude and the mindset that will allow it to all work together. See, that's the problem. A lot of people would butt heads and say, no, 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 it wasn't ever supposed to be like this. I wasn't supposed to hurt my knee. Like, no, I'm not supposed to be getting this surgery. Well, that's the way that it is. Right. And so can you string that together with the before and what's going to be the after? And can you tie a knot around those things? And can you make all of this stuff work? Right. Together in a and I think line? that's like right? that's and been
1: something that I mean, I know when I struggled with the injury the first time, when I heard him have to have the surgery, that was hard. But it was just like, OK, well, let's just I'm just so happy to have an answer. So let's look at now you finally have an answer the solution. You can start working on getting better. And then when it was one after the other after the other, I've had people say, you know, like, I just don't understand how, how you dealt with it so well. And I'm just like, you know, what? when you get faced with adversity, and I, I, I'll say this, this is an area of my life that I've done well with it. I am certainly not, <clears throat> I haven't mastered it across the board, but when it's come to my athletic pursuit, when I've been faced with those challenges, it's like what option would people have thought that I would take or what would they have taken, like to be a martyr about it and sit around and be depressed? It's just like, because trust me, when I got the news about never maybe being able to run again, I had a moment of like, okay, I know there's a solution. To this. I'm going to let myself like be real depressed for a week. And every night, like, and I held it together for the most part publicly, but every night I came home and I cried. And I knew that wasn't the solution, but it's just like it's silly as it sounds over something. I mean, but it's like it was a, it was a loss of identity, so it was like I had a grieving process. But it's just like okay. What are you going to do? Because you can have your little grief period right now, but you've got to start thinking on what is your solution and what's your next step? Because this isn't, this is an okay option right now and it's normal, but this isn't an okay option for the rest of your life. And for at least a year, you can't run. So what are you going to do now? Who do you, who are you going to be now?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I heard it the other day. I heard it said the other day that happiness consists of the solving of life's problems. Yeah. You know, and no matter what, you're always going to have a problem. People would look at you and say, oh, Leah, you know, riding professional for Canyon SRAM. You know, that's so awesome. And it's like,
2: you've got problems. <laughs> right.
0: Like I know you're talking she's, about. Got like, she's got problems. <laughs> she's got. She's got. Yeah, right. So got it's, all about, it's all about <laughs> yeah. handling those things and it's all about constantly thinking moving about through the struggle these things and continually moving forward, right? The struggle. That's right. The struggle this is, is so real. Real. It's always real. <laughs> so but well Leah, man, thank you so much for, you know, being on here. Thank you so much for just sharing your story. I I man, like a lot of people know you now as <laughs> one of the Zwift thing, and that's awesome. Yeah, like, but I knew her way back this when huge, that, <laughs> But there's this huge backstory, right? Of like you with the running and everything. And so many people don't know that. They know that you got injured and they're like, oh, she got an injury. Maybe she stubbed her toe yeah. on the couch, you know? But it's like, no, like it was for real. Um, like, so thank you so much for going into detail with all of that so that people can actually, like, you know, really kind of know who you are and see so you line up at some of these races and watch you on TV and stuff. And now they have a way better yeah. understanding of like where you yeah. come from. And just I'm sure that some folks will kind of follow you along your journey to keep seeing where you're gonna end up. With that being said, like can you give some people some places maybe where they can keep up with you, keep up with your team, like all of that? Yeah, good stuff? you can
1: um as far as well both me and the team, we're on all the social media channels. I think on Twitter and Instagram, the team is women cycling, like W M N S Cycling. I'm going to make sure, I'm I'm going to pull mine up right now and make sure that that's right. That would be pretty pitiful if I, and actually, I think if you just searched Canyon Sram Racing also, it'll come up. Yeah, Canyon Sram Racing, but the handle is WMN Cycling. And, of course, on Facebook. And there's also a regular newsletter that goes out. If you go to the team's Facebook page, you can subscribe and you'll get email highlights when we get into the season of all the race results and who's racing and what's coming up. And then I also have a personal Facebook page, but where I post like race, all my race reports is I have an athlete page. That's it's just Leah Thorvaldson. I try to cover, I mean, any of the, I don't do a race report for every small race, maybe when I'm back home, but I'll, I do one for all the UCI races that I ride. And I'm also on Instagram and Twitter. I'm I'm a terrible tweeter, but I'm pretty good on Instagram. And it's just my name, just Leah Thorvaldson for everything, for Instagram, Twitter. And then the same with with the team, and of course all of our sponsors as well: Canyon, SRAM, Zip. They're all. But that I don't I don't know if you're looking for like the team stats and reports that you'd want to follow the team's page.
0: Yeah. Awesome, cool. And last <laughs> but certainly not least, I'm sure that you probably want to give thank yous and shout outs to some people that you can just think of that have kind of help you get to the place where you are right oh, now. Oh, so man, man, that, so that
1: is that is unfair to put on the spot. But right off the top of my head, I mean, aside, of course, from the people at Canyon and Zwift who gave me the opportunity, my teammates who have, you know, someone said, who are your role models in cycling? And it's like, I watched the Tour de France, but I wasn't a huge follower of all things cycling. So I didn't have female cycling heroes. So it's like to be able to say my inspirations, I not come from my teammates and they're my teammates is really pretty cool. And outside of that, I mean, of course, my boyfriend, because he tolerates me puddle jumping nine months out of the year and is going to do it again. Coach Elias, Coach Gary Taylor, my running coach. Yeah, I mean, that would, those would be the first. I could go on and on and on because, trust me, there's, there's some uh, Tom and Missy for bringing the Zwift Academy to my attention, but there's. When I get into my friends, the the Pinnacle Velo girls, the local cycling community here, it's like I if I started to name them one by one, uh, we'd be here all day. But <laughs> yeah, I feel like I feel like I just <laughs> did an Academy Academy Award
0: speech. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, cool. Well, once again, thank you so much for your willingness uh, to be on the podcast. I hope you're enjoying a little bit of downtime Certainly, before, yeah. you know. I'm sure you start ramping up and getting back on it. And uh, we're looking forward to seeing what you do here in 2018 with Ken and Well,
1: Thanks so much. I appreciate you having me. It's been fun and sorry for
0: talking so much. (laughs) No, it was fantastic. I'm sure that the
2: listeners will enjoy it. Thank you so much, Leah. Thanks for tuning into the, a champion's mind podcast. I hope that you got a lot from this interview. It was just, it was lengthy, but there's so much good stuff in there. I think it might even be worth a second. Listen, just to track Leah's career and just to see how she started off and how her mindset has evolved over time to the current place where she's at, where she really is having to apply a growth mindset, being thrown you know, into the lion's den to the world pro tour level with Canyon SRAM. And coming from just racing amateur events via USA Cycling. There there should be a middle ground there, and there wasn't for her, and so she's really had to kind of grab on with both hands, really take that challenge on, but at the same time have this mindset of growth and learning and looking for opportunities to do that because otherwise she would begin to look around her and get disparaged because she's not at the level that a lot of these girls are at right now. but. The one thing she's lacking that will get her there is experience. And so it's really cool to just listen to Leah talk about that and the fact that with each passing day, with each passing training session, with each passing race, she's learning and she's filing all of that away. So I'm super excited for what 2018 would have for her and to see the evolution in how comfortable she is in her racing, in how comfortable she is in doing different things and kind of stretching herself to be able to fulfill an even bigger role with Canyon SRAM this year. As a matter of fact, I was just touching base with her. She's currently down in Australia and doing some racing out there while the Canyon SRAM girls take on the women's edition of the Tour Down Under, and they've got her doing some uh, lower-level kind of tier racing just to get her feet wet, kind of like they did with her last season. And I asked her, I said, okay, compared to last year, you know, how comfortable are you With the racing this year at that level, and she was like, man, I'm doing so much better. I mean, everything has just come leaps and bounds from what it was last year, being more comfortable in the pack and the speeds that we're racing at and all that. So I'm super excited for her. And again, you know, she left us some some places there where we can follow her and her team along her journey. So I would hope that you would do that. Thank you guys once again for tuning in. And if you guys enjoyed this podcast and you're interested in listening some more of the content that I put out, then go jump onto iTunes and search A Champion's Mind where you'll find the podcast. If you like it enough, then go ahead and give it a subscribe. That way you don't miss anything that comes out. I've also got a Facebook page and a YouTube channel, both by the name Utmost Performance, where you'll find videos and other content that's obviously not available via iTunes and podcast format. Last but not least, if you want it all in one place, jump onto the website, utmostperformance.info. And additionally, on that page, you'll find some links and some contact information for me in case you want to reach out and you want to partner with me on a one-on-one basis where we can talk more of the nuts and bolts of your life and kind of what you're going through and so we can really get into some of these areas where we can apply that growth mindset and get you to learn and grow and get you to perform at a higher level more consistently. Once again, thank you guys so much for the continued support that you guys have shown me. I appreciate it. I hope you guys have a fantastic rest of your day. Until next time.